0: This is Mission.org. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. There's an old saying that in every tragedy, there's an opportunity. Sometimes it's our darkest moments that we find a way to make the world a better place. And that's exactly what Christine DeWendell, the US co-founder and CEO of Sunday, sought out to do during the pandemic. Today, marketers are all trying to create a frictionless experience, or simply a better buying experience for the consumer. But what is less seamless than waiting on the person to bring you the bill? Sunday sought to rectify this, and they did.
1: The entrepreneurs will tell you this every day, It is full of challenges and the ups and downs of building a company like this are incredible. And so I mentioned seeing your product live is so rewarding. The stress and the anxiety of making sure that you're building a really robust product that won't disappoint is also extremely nice. So I love the enthusiasm we're getting. I am extremely appreciative of my teams because I never thought it would be such a roller coaster in terms of emotions. It's really a call out to other entrepreneurs that this is exciting, but this can be so hard. And I think when I tell the shiny story, people don't realize all the ups and downs that go with building something like this at this speed.
0: Sunday's technology is simple, but has innovated the restaurant industry in ways that has staying power. Not only is it creating a smoother process for consumers, but it also has the possibility to give businesses a better sense of who they're working with while also creating a much more personalized experience. On Marketing Trends, Christine takes us through the process of jumping on the opportunity, how to scale quickly while finding good candidates regardless of the market, and the importance of strong central branding. This and a whole lot more on this episode of Marketing Trends. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron, Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And today we have Christine Dewindel, CEO, U.S. co-founder of Sunday. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeremy. Super excited to have you. You have a really interesting business that I feel is very well-timed given this, the rapid changes in, in, in behavior and how consumers are using QR codes these days. And so I kind of want to start at the genesis for you. And like, what was the, the beginning of, of Sunday? Was this kind of you and the three co-founders sitting around at the dinner table, having a conversation around this technology? Or what was the very beginning of birthing this really cool business? So,
1: Jeremy, the way Sunday was born was in my co-founder, Victor's Restaurants. And so Victor and Tigran, both co-founders of the business, have a really successful restaurant group in Europe, uh, highly Instagrammable, very sexy restaurants. Uh, It's called the Big Mama Group. And when COVID hit uh, in the spring of 2020, they said, we have to innovate to survive. And everyone started putting QR codes on tables for menus. And they said, well, wait a minute why can't we put qr codes on tables for payments because that'll make it faster experience it will reduce the touch and frankly it's an experience that every other industry has put into place be it venmo for peer to peer paypal for e-commerce you know even uber for uh, rides why hasn't anyone disrupted the way people pay in physical retail especially in hospitality and so they tried it out in their restaurants and there was massive, massive enthusiasm. Waiters loved it and consumers loved it. Restaurant managers loved it. And so they said, you know what? This is big enough and this is impactful enough that we can actually change an industry. Let's spin it off from the big mama group and, and build out a fintech. And that's when they I came in. They called me up last December, so exactly a year ago. And they said, Christine, you're a seasoned e-commerce, digital unicorn scaler. Do you want to join us? we want someone based in the US and uh, they're friends of mine from Paris and uh, let's do it together. And so that's how the three of us came together to build this business.
0: Wow. So they saw the opportunity at the the restaurant in Europe and they, I mean, he was like, I'm gonna go find a developer and build this. Like he just had someone just kind of build the technology.
1: We started with a very scrappy proof of concept. It worked extremely well. And that's what we used to get to market, to actually prove that the market- was interested in this type of product and that consumers love the product.
0: Wow. Okay. So now it's currently available. So we're live in five countries. Okay. US, Canada,
1: UK, France, and Spain. And uh, we are in major cities in the US. We're in Atlanta, we're in New York. We're scaling across the country. Um, In Canada, we are focused on Quebec right now, but moving uh, west. And uh, in France, we are all over the country. In the UK, we're all over the country and the same with Spain.
0: Mm. So QR codes have been around for a while. I know there was in the past they they kind of made an, an, an appearance on the scene and then in some ways kind of fizzled out in a lot of ways now with COVID and things in the world have changed. They've become really relevant. But it seems like um, depending on the country, adoption can be slow. Maybe it can be fast, depending on where they are. How has Sunday really kind of helped customers adapt to the use of QR codes?
1: So, Jeremy, you make a great point. Two years ago, nobody would have wanted to use a QR code, right? The technology exists since years, but uh, consumers didn't know how to use it. And uh, restaurateurs did not want to put QR codes on their tables. Then COVID comes through there and people, you know, adopt technology much faster because they need to. And uh, people don't want to touch anything anymore because they're, you know, sanitary precautions. And suddenly restaurateurs are putting QR codes on their tables everywhere all over the Western world and consumers all know how to use them. In addition, uh, the cell phone technologies have changed and it's much easier to use QR codes than it was a couple of years ago. So you have this perfect storm where uh, there's been a unique and tragic phenomena in the world, which is COVID, but has given a massive acceleration to the adoption of this technology. And so the baseline is everyone knows how to use a QR code. Everyone gets it and restaurateurs are really open to innovation. Hmm. Then to the second part of your question, what you realize is that you're gonna have different levels of adoption depending on the market. And it's very often correlated to the adoption of mobile payments. And so what you'll see is that the U.S. Uh, has absolutely embraced mobile payments and you know, Apple Pay and Google Pay are very prevalent. And then, you know, if you move over to the UK, it's quite high. And then as you move into Southern Europe, uh, those rates get lower. And we see a direct correlation between uh, adoption of mobile payments and adoption of, of Sunday. That being said, we are blown away by how quickly consumers are using the tool. We have about 50% adoption wow, on average across our, our markets, which means when Sunday is deployed in a restaurant. About 50% of people are paying with it. And that'll go up to 95% in, you know, very urban, younger, uh, hipper restaurants. And it'll go down in, you know, more established restaurants who don't have a clientele that's used to using technology. But overall, we're around 50%, which is very impressive. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's it. That is that's awesome. How are you thinking about the digital experience, you know, your customers go through when they scan a code?
1: So what we've done right now is we've said, if we want to get to market really quickly and take advantage of this incredible wave and this opportunity that has, you know, come out of the COVID pandemic, we said we need to make it really easy. And so our solution, uh, and I didn't explain to the, the audience what it is, is we put a QR code on the table Uh, we map it to the point of sale system. And uh, it allows you as a consumer to scan the QR code on the table, see the menu uh, order, like many restaurants already had, but then pull up your bill and pay. And so we're transforming something that used to take 15 minutes and we're turning it into a 10 second experience. So basically you scan the QR code, your bill shows up and you pay with Apple Pay, Google Pay, or you can input any credit card. The user journey or the customer experience that you're asking about is right now web app based. And that's been a very deliberate decision. We needed it to go really quickly. And we, when you use it for the first time, we're not asking you to sign up. We're not asking you to download an app. We just want it to happen seamlessly, right? It needs to happen in 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. So you scan it, your bill pops up, you swipe your thumb with Apple Pay if you're an app, you know, an iPhone user and you're out of there. Incredibly seamless experience. Hmm. Down the road, and we're you know developing that very quickly, and it'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks, we will have an app because repeat users do have a real interest in having more information in Sunday and having their information stored. But right now, the vast majority of customers who are using it are using it because it's really quick and it's a really easy, seamless experience.
0: What are kind of some of the big takeaways, lessons learned, you know, because you guys scaled super quickly, you know, in the past 12 months. And I saw something about over a million users like within the first four months. Is that accurate?
1: That is accurate. Yes.
0: I mean, that's it. That's incredible. So clearly, you know, you, you, you're looking for, for market fit and there's there's some there's a lot of visibility there. You're, you're getting a lot of users. What are some of the things that you learned with that kind of explosive growth in the past 12 months?
1: All right. So the growth trajectory is we started the company in March. So exactly nine months ago, we raised a lot of money, $124 million. We said we want to launch in Europe and in North America at the same time, because this technology is so powerful, is going to have such an impact. We want to make sure to get market share and really get our foot on the ground in each of those markets from the outset. So what does that mean? Well, you have to deploy really quickly and uh, you need to make sure you have strong central processes that don't create chaos. So what does it mean to launch in five countries in in six months? Um, or, you know, now we've been nine months in. Well, we've hired 290 people, uh, which means you have to build a hiring machine and you have to hire top talent in each one of those markets and local talent in each one of those markets. And then you need to make sure that you have a central playbook uh, you have a really strong brand uh, that you have strong tech and product um, and that you have a playbook for operations and sales uh, that you can duplicate effectively in each market. And so how did we do it? Well, we went to go get seasoned executives who had done expansion in each one of their areas um, and who were excited about doing it in five countries at the same time.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, it seems like launching... You know, in those markets simultaneously. I mean, it's going to be a whole host of amazing challenges that can come up. You know, you're you know you're launching locally, you're launching you know internationally, you know. So it's got to be an interesting experience in in that. Were there like huge, huge obstacles in launching simultaneously in that way, or you know, you had such a wide user adoption? Was it just home run after home run and launching all these markets, Or or did it present some interesting challenges in doing it at the same time?
1: So some of the challenges we've seen are related to time zones. And um, that balance between having very strong central functions, um, and some of those are based in North America, some of those based in Europe, um, and making sure that you're giving enough attention uh, to each one of the areas is is challenging. I'll give you a very concrete example. Um, A big part of our support tech is based in France. And so for launching in Europe, perfect. Um, For launching on the East Coast of the U.S., it works. You have roughly, you know, 6%, uh, six hours a day of overlap. And then when we started launching on the West Coast of the U.S., we were realizing that there was basically no overlap between restaurant opening hours. And don't forget, when do our restaurants work? Uh, in the evenings and on Saturdays and Sundays. And so how do you make that compatible uh, with a phenomenal tech team that's working in France and who needs to be servicing the West Coast? And obviously, when you have two hundred and ninety people in the company and you're nine months old, things are still very chaotic. And uh, that was a little messy. So time zones is definitely something we've um, uh, we've seen challenges with. From a language perspective, what's been really important is uh, to hire a lot of bicultural people because you need people who are natives in their markets, who know the market well, who speak the language perfectly. But obviously, our core language and our, our main language at, at Sunday is English, and that's the way we communicate. And so when you're hiring, you need to make sure you're able to have people who can you know, have one foot in a very global English-speaking startup, and on the other hand, who are you know, one foot with a very local approach and who know every great restaurant in Barcelona and Madrid and uh, know which dive bar they need to talk to to talk to the right restaurateurs. And that's a little bit of a balancing act, right? Sometimes I feel like we're, you know, splitting ourselves both ways to have that hyper local expertise and have the mindset of being an absolutely global, scalable company.
0: You talked about a hiring machine, and I'm curious if you can maybe unpack that a bit, because clearly you've grown in headcount as well as users. What goes into kind of building a hiring machine? What are some of the things you and the leadership team are putting together there?
1: It goes back to a central process, right? What are the guidelines for hiring? If you want to hire effectively, and this is something I've I've done throughout my career, you want to put a very clear process in place that ensures quality, but also speed. And so um, what are the questions you're systematically asking to candidates? How quickly do you ask them to get back to you? What's the process for doing a case study? And um, once you've built that process, it's much easier to deploy. So I'll give you a really concrete example. Right now, I'm hiring uh, 10 city general managers throughout the US because we've seen great traction on the East Coast. And so now we're, we're, moving, we're moving west. And so how do you do that simultaneously? Well, it's the same job description. Um, it's the same initial interview questions before you actually speak with a candidate. Um, we use a great tool called the Predictive Index, which is a, an HR tool that takes five minutes um, that allows us to see the character of our candidates. You ask someone to respond. And so everything is somewhat formatted, but then the actual interaction you have with uh, the person hiring you or the hiring manager is very personable and very human. And so you want to build those rails, but you still want it to be a very hands-on high touch approach. Um, and then we make sure we respond to people within you know X days and that we have um, a decision made within X days. How many people do they see? How long does it take? Mm. And um, that allows you to see... Hundreds of candidates, you know, to hire three hundred people we've we've seen probably thousands of candidates at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. still provide a good experience and ensure you're keep you keep raising the bar and you're hiring qualitative candidates
0: so in terms of the marketing there, i'm I'm assuming that it's kind of is it decentralized where you've got marketing folks you know in all these countries where you're live, or is there kind of a centralized marketing team here maybe in the u s that's really you know spearheading everything internationally? What's that look like?
1: So we have, again, central approach with uh, a local presence. And so I mentioned earlier that building a strong brand is, is part of what we're doing. We're building strong central functions. We're building a to c brand. And so uh, you may have seen Sunday has a very fun, approachable, you know, very deliberate brand identity because we do want to build a B2C brand. Now, how do you do that? Well, as an early stage startup, you overinvest in brand. And if you take a look at our website, you look at our, our marketing materials, um, we have, I think, done a really great job with that, more so than than most fintechs who are at the same level of maturity than we are. Um, and so that's a very strong central function. And my co-founder, Victor, this is something he's very passionate about. He's built some of the most beautiful restaurants in Europe. And so from the outset, he said, we're going to be able to fintech with an awesome brand identity. Mm. So you have that really strong central function. And then each market, you're going to have a local uh, brand manager, head of brand, who's going to make sure we adapt uh, to the local market. But 80% of your materials are going to come from that central marketing function. Mm. So we have roughly 15 people on our marketing team and, um, the, the, most of them are are central, and then we have uh, one person in each market who's really, and we're building those teams out to make sure uh, that they can support the local market.
0: How do you create a unified brand and voice across different cultures? You're operating in, you know so many different places. How do you create that kind of unified brand?
1: Well, it comes back to first of all, having a really strong brand. Um, and so, Once you build that strong brand, making sure that every one of your local touch points respects that brand. So I'll give you the example of uh, social media. When we have local social media sites, the look and feel is very much orchestrated by central. Um, That way you have one brand. That being said, we have to give the local teams enough flexibility that they can be effective in their market. Uh, So again, very strong guidelines strong central presence, but with leeway to adapt where they need to in each market.
0: Hmm. In terms of just like marketing channels and, and, and kind of how you invest in them across these markets, like, is there a difference? Like, how, how, how do you invest in the US versus France versus in Spain? Do you follow the same approach in terms of the marketing channels you're using? Are you testing various things?
1: So again, the central team starts with a common hypothesis for each market. And then we adapt. So what we see is that in for digital marketing, in some markets doing, you know, digital marketing spend on uh, Facebook is way more effective than Instagram. And then in certain markets, it's the opposite. So you start with a common baseline um, with a central team that has international experience. And then uh, you do test and learn and you see, okay actually, in Spain, uh, this works better. In the US, this works better. And then you bring on local experts in your local teams who say, wait a minute. If you want to be successful in the U.S., you need to be over-indexing your spend on Instagram because that's what's working best. However, you know, for France, this is going to work better. So, in France, for example, we're starting a big out-of-home campaign this week um, in uh, the Parisian subway. So we'll be in nice. one hundred and twenty subway stations. Huge. Um, that's something which which is massive, fantastic for the B two C brand equity. Um, because every public transportation rider in Paris is going to see the Sunday brand loud and clear. And there um, we're testing that in the French market, uh, which is where we have the biggest presence. We're going to see how that works. And then based on those learnings, we'll deploy in other markets uh, and, and adapt to those markets. Mm. And so the great thing about being in five countries and having you know local experts in each country is you can take the central playbook and tweak it. And you have to reinvent exactly what that playbook looks like.
0: Wow. I love that. What do you think other, you know, competitors, because I know there are other competitors that, that had this technology and not maybe the same QR code scan, but I know here in Austin, you know, there, there were other vendors that you could pay, you know, at the table or pay. What do you think Sunday really is doing better than those folks? Cause I feel like the technology in some ways or the, or the, the solution was there at some level before, but clearly Sunday is like, there's a there's a velocity happening with sunday and so what did you kind of observe with the competitors that were already kind of offering this at least here in the US
1: so the first thing i want to say is our background the fact that we are built by restaurateurs for restaurants definitely helps we have a phenomenal sandbox which is my co-founder's restaurant group where we test every one of our new features and we get you know instant feedback from thousands or tens of thousands of users so that's that's really important We are building this not from the perspective of tech executives, but we're building this from the perspective of restaurant owners. And so it means we're over-investing in our restaurant dashboards and not just the consumer-facing element. We're making sure that we're building a solution that builds trust with restaurateurs and that addresses the waiter's needs. So that's the first thing. And most of our competitors were coming from more of a payment um, tech angle. So this will be one of the first times you have a restaurateur Mm. who builds – uh, a company at scale. So uh, industry expertise, super important. Uh, the second piece is we have been incredibly fortunate uh, to raise this much money um, and have such a large vision and have such great traction with our investors that allows us to go quickly. Um, so what we we talked about it earlier, there's been a, a unique window because of the pandemic uh, where people acknowledge that there's a place for this technology, there's an appetite for uh, you know, bringing this new technology in, which is quite unique, that there's a there's such a timeframe time frame that's so active, and so having the right funding, the right team, the right idea at the right time has helped us get a lot of traction. And uh, a lot of the players that had tried this technology earlier came a little too soon, and uh, they didn't have the traction. And then you know it's harder uh, to go see investors and raise this kind of money when you've been in market for three or four years, uh, you don't necessarily have the restaurant experience. You don't necessarily have the tech scale-up experience. Uh, So we came in with Victor's restaurant experience, my tech scale-up experience, and we said, we can rock this market. Right. Um, So that's that's the long answer to it. Mm. Another element, which is, is interesting, is a lot of the point of sales that we work with have tried to develop a similar technology. What we've seen is that the, we're building a POS agnostic solution, right? We want to work with every point of sale out there. And uh, that means we're really truly building a B2C brand and every point of sale understands that. And that's why we've had mm. great traction and great partnerships with most of the point of sales because they realize that it's a very fragmented market and that uh, working with us means that we're really building something that's going to address 70, 80, 90, 100% of the market as opposed to just their customer base.
0: Mm, I love that. That makes a lot of sense, actually. As you bring more restaurant groups on board, like, what, what are the main kind of groups of restaurants that you're targeting now? Like, how do you determine that?
1: So in all of our markets, we had the same approach uh, to start with. We said, let's start with small and medium-sized restaurants uh, just because the sales cycle is shorter. Uh, you can immediately talk to the decision maker and uh, they will probably be less demanding on custom features. Um, which allows us to build one product and deploy it quickly. We also said in each one of our markets, we need to go get local heroes, which will help us get traction and help build case studies so that other restaurants will say, okay, if this restaurant is working with them, then we would do the same thing. And we did that in London in Paris and Madrid in Barcelona and Atlanta and New York. So that, that's working really nicely. Now that we're you know nine months in, we've, we've signed uh, about 3,000 restaurants. Uh, so we're, we, we've we proven the model. We're getting great traction. Now is when we're starting to focus really on mid-market and enterprise brands uh, because that's going to help us create the real flywheel of adoption where tomorrow when you, Jeremy, go into a restaurant, you ask if you can pay with Sunday because you've used it five times in the past month and you think it's a great solution. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you're going to get impatient if you can't be using a solution like Sunday, because you never want to wait for the check again. Mm. And so now we're ready. We also have way more robust tech teams. You know, When we started, we had five, 10 people on the tech team. It was very tough for us to build a product that would be perfect for larger accounts. Now that we have larger tech teams, we can actually customize. We can see if they have any specific needs. We're able to deploy to the enterprise. So in short, first with local heroes in the small and medium segment, and then, as we grow and expand, focusing more on mid-market and enterprise grants.
0: Hmm. So, as you pick metros in the U.S., kind of as you're, you know, opening more metros, like, are is there a is there a certain number of you know restaurants in that geo where it's like, okay, we're going to go Austin, then Houston, or, or Dallas, then all like, how do you decide? Okay, what metro are we going to jump into next?
1: So, we start with uh, basic statistics. We take a look at what are the big metro areas and um, what is you know. Uh, disposable income. Uh, we look at classic economic metrics to say, okay, this city makes sense. And then uh, we take a look at where we have easy access to a local hero or you know a flagship restaurant in the area, because that's going to activate uh, the flywheel. And so that's through network. Uh, we have phenomenal investors who are from the F&B space who know people who could have a restaurant in one of these markets, if we're working with them in Atlanta, New York, or Montreal. And so part of it's opportunistic and just, can we get access to a couple of those flagship restaurants? And the other piece is purely economical. Is it a city that has a big food scene where people go out a lot um, and where the demographics make sense to start? Mm. We start hyper-local because it's easier to have sales and ops teams in one space. And as we get traction, we expand.
0: Mm, Where are you seeing the fastest adoption in terms of demographics?
1: So Atlanta is a great example. Um, So it's also where our headquarters is. It's it's my hometown. And so we we had somewhat of a head start here, Um, but it's a city with, um, you know, big purchasing power. Uh, It's a city where people do like to go out, um, but restaurateurs are not uh, opposed to putting QR codes on tables. So um, if you compare to a city like New York, uh, where uh restaurant are a little bit more conscious of the aesthetics and the experience in their restaurant the sale is a little bit trickier and so our we're seeing our sweet spot is cities where people like to go out where there are big restaurants um who are digitally progressive who are excited about innovation and um who see the need to innovate um and so that's one one important criteria and um once we have those local heroes in the market, it's really easy to deploy. Uh, so right now we're focusing on 10 cities in the U.S., which are all the major metro areas. And we'll pick that to take the example of Texas, since you're based in Austin. Right now, we said we're going to start in Dallas. And, uh, and then that team, once they get traction, Dallas is in a perfect position to start expanding to the other cities in Texas mm. so that we get a good coverage of the region. And let's be honest, you can't do it all at the same time. So you have to be very tactical in the way you deploy
0: Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm very, obviously very bullish on Austin. I live here, but I just, I feel like Sunday will be, it'll be huge. It'll be- We're going to call you, Jeremy, when we're ready. Let me know. Yeah. Give give us another six months and we'll be there. Okay. I love it. That's awesome. What what kind of marketing channels or media are you seeing the best results within the kind of the D2C part of your strategy? So
1: at this point in our deployments, we mainly focused on B2B, right? Uh, because the way our business works is, first we have to get in the restaurants, and then once we're in the restaurants, we have enough traction and market share, then we can uh, target the end consumers. But we're if we're not in the restaurants, there's no point of going uh, to the direct consumer. And so right now, the bulk of our efforts have been through digital media, pushing to restaurants. So lots of Facebook invest because a lot of our tours are on Facebook, lots of Instagram invest because tours are on Instagram. And that's, what's helping us fill our sales pipeline with leads uh, to build the B2B element. We are just starting now when we have enough traction in the market to focus on the C part. And so I talked to you about the out of home campaign, uh, which we're about to launch in the, in the subway uh, in Paris. This is a great example of we have enough traction in downtown Paris with the B2B part that we can start activating the B2C flywheel. Mm. But if you don't have restaurants live, I mean, I'll give you a very concrete example. If I start doing consumer marketing in Austin, but I don't have any restaurants live, um, there's not gonna be impact. So it's really that B2B to C go to market
0: strategy. I love it. I'd love to just for you to just kind of reflect on, you know, the past, you know, since you started until now, you know, just thinking about, you know, what's, what's kind of been like one of your most exciting days, maybe the best day, and then also maybe what's been the most challenging day?
1: So they're quite linked. The most exciting day for me is, and this happens to me now, thankfully, you know, almost uh, you know, several times a week, but the first time I went into a restaurant in the US and uh, the product was live and I saw consumers around me using it and loving it. And I saw waiters pushing it. And that aha moment when you see someone at the table next to you who wants to leave the restaurant and who doesn't have to wait for the check anymore and uh, who's going to you know, save 12, 15 minutes because they're not going to wait for the check, ask for it, get the check, give their credit card and have it come back. That is incredible and so satisfying. And that's, I think, the beauty of being an entrepreneur is that you see your product live and you see how it impacts an industry, how it impacts the customer experience. Phenomenal. And so what I do every day when I come home from work is I stop by one of our restaurants for five, 10 minutes to talk to the general manager of one of the restaurants that are live, uh, you know, in our neighborhood in, in Atlanta. And I check in and see if everything's working. And that moment where I see that smile of it can be, you know, the 75-year-old uh, who's using this type of technology for the first time, or someone who, you know, thinks this is totally standard, phenomenal. The downside of building an early stage company is when there's an outage. And so, you know, let's be very realistic. We're building a product from scratch. Uh, There are tech integrations and we've been lucky. There have not been so many, but when there's an outage, that means we kill trust with restaurants. Mm. And that is incredibly painful because for one hour, half an hour, five minutes, the product doesn't work. And then every one of those waiters loses that incredible trust and enthusiasm they have. Mm. And so that's when I'm seeing, you know, really what uh, building a company from scratch is, that incredible high of seeing your product work and create impact. And that incredible low of saying, I just killed relationships with 50, 100, 200 restaurants that I'm going to have to rebuild and regain that trust because for five minutes, my product didn't work for whatever reason.
0: Mm. Right. Wow. What would you tell other kind of CEOs and entrepreneurs about kind of how they can really start on this journey of creating, you know, just a more seamless, better end-to-end customer experience? Like, where should they start? I feel like this is something you guys are getting right. And I'd love your thoughts on that.
1: I mentioned it earlier. I think one of the things where we've been incredibly lucky is that we have a live sandbox in my co-founder's restaurants. And I think we really spend hours, days, weeks, months, observing the customer experience and getting feedback. And so we're not sitting in a great co-working space, building an ideal product. Uh, We put it into market and then we adapt. And we're in a unique position to be able to to tweak it at scale without compromising a relationship with a partner because of my co-founder's restaurant group. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing. And we go one step further as we make sure that every one of our employees understands what it's like to be a waiter, an operator in a restaurant. And so part of our onboarding process is everyone needs to spend uh, at least a day uh, waiting tables. Mm. Um, so we've partnered with restaurants. And if you if you, you know, have been a, a waiter, if you were waiting tables in college, you know exactly how painful it is at 7 p.m. on Friday when everyone wants to do something at the same time and something doesn't work. And so you know how rigorous you need to be on the excellence of your product. Until you've been in that moment and until you've felt the heat of being a waiter at rush hour, you can't understand. So we make sure every one of our employees uh, has that experience. And then we keep testing in a live sandbox and getting feedback and iterating on the product.
0: Mm. So for folks who like other folks who don't have that live sandbox, I mean, that's what you guys had and and you still have it and it's amazing. Are there still some... Yeah, some things you can might, might share with someone who is launching something, you know, similarly, maybe in another industry, but maybe doesn't have that exact starting point, but they still want to focus on creating a better customer experience.
1: Yes, very, very tactical recommendation is to say, okay, how do you get on your cap table or as an early investor or as an advisor, somebody or a company who's on your customer end? who can become that live sandbox. And it doesn't have to be you know, your co-founder's company. It can be uh, someone who you give the opportunity to invest in. It's even somebody you can say, listen, I'm going to give you a small stake of equity and you're going to be my sandbox and I want you to build this with me and you're going to be my first preferred partner. And that customer feedback is priceless. And be it you know, B2B customer feedback where that makes more sense or having uh, you know, an ambassador group or a testing group preferred end customer group, if you're building something B2C, um, it's incredibly valuable because that's how you can continue iterating on your product. So get to market and keep iterating. Mm. And at first you may need to subsidize that with, you know, an equity stake, with lower prices, with some sort of financial incentive that gets that B2B partner or that B2C partner excited about working with you.
0: What's your relationship with like this idea of like predictable growth, you know, it's like you on one hand, you and your co-founders and the team there, you have this really, all this really cool data. You've telling an amazing story you've launched in, you know, multiple markets, you're in Europe, you're in the U S you're growing rapidly, you know? And when I think about the experience that a customer will have in using this, like what, I guess what's the ultimate end user experience when someone, are we going to like I can book on Sunday. I can certainly pay on Sunday. What's kind of the evolution of where we're headed with this, with this experience? So
1: our vision with Victor is to transform the experience in physical retail. And that starts with payments, but then there are so many other consumer touch points where we can provide a better experience that hasn't been done yet in physical retail, that the, the ideal customer journey with us, and I'll, I'll focus on hospitality, but you could actually, you know, extend this to other elements of physical retail is to say, okay, restaurants and hotels are one of the last places where, you know, the operator knows nothing about the person when they come into the lobby or they come into the restaurant. And so even if you go to the same restaurant in Austin every second week, unless the waiter recognizes you, uh, there's no way for them to have information about you're the guy who always likes to have a draft beer on Fridays at, you know, 7 p.m. And so we start with a payment experience, which allows us to have a lot of data. It also touches one of the most important operational uh, moments of the experience that needs to be fixed, which helps us deploy quickly because everyone gets that payment is a pain point in the diner experience. But then once you have that customer base, and once you're in those restaurants and you've created trust with them, you can add on additional features. And so um, at some point you can do smart ordering. Uh, you can obviously, uh, make sure that if someone is, you know, allergic to shellfish or the specials are out, you're not putting them on the menu anymore. It's the payment piece is really the first, uh, step of building that tower, um, or building that rocket ship or whatever you want to call it. Um, because it's an obvious way to enter the market, but then you can start adding additional touch points. And so in my, you know, ideal scenario, when, We've deployed all the features we'd like to. You can go into a restaurant. Um, They will know who you are. We're gonna partner with reservation uh, companies. Um, You're gonna sit down at the table. The menu you're gonna see is not gonna have the things on top that you never take that you don't like. Um, And when you're ready to pay, all of that will happen seamlessly, right? And it'll be a phenomenal tool for recommending other places you should go to, recommending what you should have, I mean, there's a huge potential. And so right now we're laser focused on building that first brick, which is executing and executing well on the payment piece and getting market share. But then we're starting to look at all the additional features that you could build, which would enrich the customer experience and also the restaurant experience. It's
0: hmm. awesome. So cool. Is there anything else that you wished you get asked when you get interviewed that no one asked you? Something else you want to talk about, but maybe doesn't always get brought up?
1: I think I would say something, which um, this, is, this is something I'd like to say as an entrepreneur. Uh, we are getting phenomenal traction. Uh, our story is really exciting. We've raised a lot of money. We're live in five countries. We have what I believe is a fantastic product, but entrepreneurs will tell you this every day. It is full of challenges and the ups and downs of building a company like this. Are incredible, and so I mentioned seeing your product live is so rewarding, and the the stress and the anxiety of making sure that you're building a really robust product that won't disappoint is also extremely nice. So um, I I love the enthusiasm we're getting, um, and um, I am extremely appreciative of my teams because I never thought it would be you know such a roller coaster in terms of emotions, and um, so I mean it's really a, a call out. Uh, to other entrepreneurs that, damn, this, this is exciting, but this can be so hard. And I think when I, I tell the shiny story, uh, people don't realize all the ups and downs that go mm. with building something like this at this speed. And, you know, with this type of deployment.
0: Yeah, that's all. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that's, I think it's really important. It's such a, you know, I, I say this sometimes, but it's, it's such a full contact sport, really? right? Being an entrepreneur, especially look, I mean, you guys, like you said, you've raised a bunch of capital, which adds another layer of, you know, not necessarily pressure, depending on how you view it, but it just adds another layer of visibility for some. And, and as you scale, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, this now it's like, you know, going from, you know, the team of five to team of 10 to 50 to hundred to, I mean, there's, there are things that happen operationally as you're scaling and, and you're doing it, not in just one market, you're doing it literally, you know, around the world. and I mean, I can only imagine, you know, the things of like, well, you wake up and there's another big obstacle you got to go around over through. I uh, know, oh, by the way, you have this team that, you know, you're accountable to and the investors and your, and your co-founders. And so it also seems like, you know, you and your co-founders have this have established some really cool trust and connection. Yes. And it seems like that's a that's uh, talking about the first brick. I think that's so important. And it seems like you it's three of you, right? It's three of us. Um, okay. Two of us yeah. who are
1: very much hands deep in the business. And and the third one, Tigan, who's also running uh, my co-founder and his uh, restaurant business. And so you're absolutely right. Um, when I give more you know, concrete advice to new entrepreneurs, I tell them that it starts with the trust that you can build with your co-founders. And that makes everything possible. And Victor is based in London. I'm based in Atlanta. We're on the phone every day. We're on What's Up 20 times a day. And we, we laugh together. We, we scream together. We haven't cried yet together, which is good. But we're, uh, you know, there's an absolute solidarity, uh, which also makes the whole process way more enjoyable, way more fun. And uh, both of us are convinced that this is only worth it if you're enjoying every step of the journey. And despite the challenges, you need to have fun with it. And so that absolutely comes with the trust that you build with your co-founder.
0: I love it. That's so cool. Christine, this has been exceptional. I've I've enjoyed this conversation. I am very excited, more excited about what you and the squad at Sunday is building. I'm excited for this to get to Austin. Let's go. I'm a big foodie. We're coming, Jeremy. My small circle. We're waiting for this. And so I'm I'm excited for you. Congratulations again. Marketing Trends podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. Learn more at Salesforce.com forward slash marketing. We have Christine dewendell co-founder u s Sunday let's do this. What do you miss about living in Perry?
1: I miss the baguettes and I miss uh, riding my bike to work
0: mm, love it I've been there a few times and I, I love I love Perry so much it's so great. What is the most exciting part about your work and creating Sunday?
1: The most exciting part is that we are changing the way people pay in the hospitality industry and I am ultimately convinced that five years from now, every restaurant in the Western world will be using this type of technology. And the fact that we're at the forefront of this is exhilarating.
0: Mm. What's your best advice for a first-time entrepreneur looking to scale in the same way that you guys have been?
1: So one, trust with your co-founders. It is incredibly challenging. And so building a company with people you trust is essential. Two, You need to hire well. I can't stress this enough. You need to be ahead of your hiring plan and you need to hire people who are better than you. Mm. And that's the way you're going to build a phenomenal company.
0: I love that. Finish this sentence. Something wise my elders taught me was. I already said it. Hire people who are better than you. I love that. There's gold in that for executives out there listening and, and certainly entrepreneurs. There's real gold in that. Finish this sentence, please. An ideal adventure for you would be what? Outdoors, not too risky, but
1: with beautiful sights and uh, you know awe-inspiring uh, views. So I love that. Take me hiking in the Alps. Uh, you know, take me hiking in the Appalachians. You know, something where I can clear my head mm. and have a real outdoor adventure. Cool.
0: Please finish this sentence. I'm secretly curious about what it's like to work with Elon Musk. Mm, that's a good one ok. And lastly, what do you love and appreciate about yourself?
1: My enthusiasm, and uh, no matter how crappy things get, I'm always in a good mood and always trying to cheer on the teams and convince them that we're going to get through this. Hmm. And uh, when I see myself on Zoom or in an interview like this, you know, I, I've always got a smile, and i'm I'm here to be a cheerleader.
0: It's awesome. Cool. Christine, thanks so much for being here. Super excited and honored. and Boy, I'm excited for Sunday. Keep rocking it.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. Have a great day.
0: Awesome. You too. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster, faster, and on a much larger scale. Brightspot content management system has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.